What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Just so you know, this show is about scary stuff. So don't say I didn't warn you guys. And remember, don't be scared. Episode 92 Obsessed War Baby here with another episode of Murderous Minors. Being allowed to date is probably one of the most exciting developments in a teenager's life, but for parents, it should be the opposite. Although it's cute and adorable to see the spark of new love shimmering behind young eyes, we should all know better than to applaud. For we, as readers of the news and followers of true crime, must know that domestic violence does not discriminate by age, and that obsessive relationships rife with abuse can envelop 15-year-olds just as easily as they can an adult man or woman. It's just hard to imagine it could happen to a teen that you care about. This week on Murderous Minors, we look at two soul-crushing stories of young love turned homicidal, and two promising teen girls whose lives were violently ended by boys who said they'd love them. This episode contains descriptions of self-harm, domestic violence, and sexual assault in addition to senseless murder. Please be advised. It's shocking to the core imagining fresh-faced teens dealing with threats of physical violence from a partner or ex, but that's exactly what it seems that 15-year-old Karen Perez of South Houston, Texas was enduring back in May 2016. She had just celebrated her milestone birthday in January and was a freshman at South Houston High School. In an interview, her mother told local ABC 13's Myra Moreno that she hadn't planned on throwing Karen a quinceanera, but pulled together the funds soon after, giving her daughter a magical birthday she'd never forget. In her home, Karen's mother had her photograph from the party on display, where she's wearing a tiara and a pink gown fit for a princess. Just a few weeks after that unforgettable night, on Friday, May 27, 2016, Karen's ex-boyfriend, 15-year-old Jesus Campos Jr., texted her at school. 
He told her to skip class and meet him at the school tennis courts. After which, they walked to a taco shop just feet away from the high school campus on Shaver Street. He threatened to kill her if she didn't do as he said, telling her that quote her life would end on bloods. So she went with the taco shop surveillance cameras capturing the pair with another teen boy entering inside the restaurant and exiting. The first footage from outside shows Karen walking in ahead of the two boys, with Jesus clutching her large bag as he fumbles with his pockets outside the entrance. After they ate, cameras inside captured the trio leaving, with Jesus and Karen in front holding hands and their classmate walking behind them. Karen now has her bag slung over her shoulder as they exit and head over to some abandoned apartments commonly referred to as the Bandos, located less than 1,000 feet from the high school grounds. The former Bella Vista apartment complex boasted 180 units, all empty and available for mayhem by anyone looking for a quiet place to do whatever they want, day or night. The property at 1600 Avenue M had been vacant for over eight years since 2008's Hurricane Ike caused it irreparable damage, and also buried the beach at High Island where Coral, Henley, and Brooks had buried some of their victims almost four decades earlier. Dean Coral's Pasadena, Texas home, where he killed six and lost his own life, is just two miles down Shaver Street from South Houston High School and the old Bella Vista Apartments. Though the owners claimed to have off-duty police officers on patrol, neighbors couldn't tell and condoms and drug paraphernalia riddled the grounds. Once they'd hung around for a bit, their classmate left and the couple were left alone in an abandoned apartment. We are only aware of the horrible details of the events that followed because Campos used his cell phone to record himself as he raped his ex-girlfriend. Though the screen was black, audio was captured of Karen telling him that she didn't want to do this before the assault continued. Even more heartbreaking still is that Campos didn't stop there. He continued recording as Karen repeatedly told him she didn't want to die and he choked her to death. The probable cause statement reads, quote, You can clearly hear the defendant forcing the victim to have sex with him. He even calls her by name. You can hear the victim saying she does not want to do this. You can hear the defendant choking the victim. You can hear the victim stating, I don't want to die. Campos took photos of Karen as she lay lifeless, including a picture of him stepping on her face before he concealed her partially dressed body in the cabinet beneath the sink in the abandoned apartment. Campos texted these pictures and videos to two other boys along with a text that read, quote, bros before hoes. Six hours later, Campos is again spotted on the taco shop's surveillance cameras, entering disheveled and wet and approaching the counter to ask for a phone to use, saying that he needed to call his mother. He was handed a phone and used it, although it's unknown who he actually called. Karen's mother said when interviewed that she had a feeling her daughter was dead soon after it was determined that Karen was actually missing. 
She just had a bad feeling, and over the weekend, as Texas EquiSearch members and local police searched for Karen, her mother visited that taco shop by South Houston High School and asked to see the surveillance video. In it, an employee recalled later, she saw her daughter arrive with the boy she had told her not to see anymore and leave with him hand in hand. For a moment, her panic turned to red-hot anger. She told police that they needed to search the boy's home. Jesus Campos Jr. by then was driving around searching for his ex-girlfriend with his father. It was during their search that he said they should go home and told his father that they weren't going to find Karen for she was not alive. Campos Sr. immediately contacted the South Houston Police Department to report what his son had revealed. Once speaking to officers, however, Campos clammed up, saying that he had last seen Karen at the taco shop and hadn't seen her since. By then, though, one of their friends had begun to have second thoughts about staying silent. He phoned Texas EquiSearch the following Monday to say that he'd last seen Karen alive on Friday at the abandoned apartment complex by the high school after the taco shop. Besides Campos, he was the last person to see Karen alive. He described leaving the pair in the apartment and going back to school. All hell had broken loose since. The search had been going on throughout the weekend, but it came to an abrupt halt late on Monday, May 30, 2016. Following the phoned-in tip, Texas EquiSearch members turned their focus to the hulking empty structures at 1600 Avenue M. It didn't take long for the body of 15-year-old Karen Perez to be located under the sink. Immediately, a memorial full of photographs, balloons, and stuffed animals began to take shape outside the apartment where Karen was found. Local news vans arrived and interviewed Karen's family members and those who lived nearby who were outraged that the empty buildings hadn't been demolished in the almost decade since they'd become uninhabitable, especially due to their close proximity to South Houston High School. And then, police gained access to the records and contents of two cell phones belonging to Campos and fully understood the depravity of his crime. The pictures, videos, and texts with his friends were still there, ready to incriminate the 15-year-old boy who had used the strength in his bare hands to murder an innocent girl. Jesus Francisco Campos Jr. was 18 years old when he was convicted of capital murder on November 5, 2018. Karen's mother had been unaware of the details surrounding her daughter's death until the trial, where she and others were also shown the photos and videos taken of the sexual assault and murder. He received an automatic sentence of 40 years to life in prison. He'll turn 21 in 2021 and is currently housed in the Michael Unit of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Prison in Tennessee Colony, Texas, right alongside Elmer Henley Jr. Karen Perez never got to see that framed photo that she took in her tiara and pink dress as Campos murdered her before her quinceanera pictures came back. 
She never got to learn to drive, graduate from high school, turn 18 or go to college, milestones which Ellie Gould of Calend, Wilshire, England was also looking forward to doing just about three years later. A 12th grader at Hardenwish School, Ellie had turned 17 on February 2, 2019, and was busy with school and friends and riding horses, a hobby she loved to indulge in, accompanied by her mother. It was a wonderful way for mother and daughter to spend time together, just the two of them, time her mother would grow to cherish, given the events that were to come. Ellie was a competitive writer as well, who enjoyed supporting the charity Writing for the Disabled. She was even considering using her skills to become a mounted police officer once she was finished with school. But in the meantime, she'd recently gotten a job as a waitress and was focused on studying for her upcoming mock exams. Just before her birthday, she'd shared with her mother, quite excitedly, that a boy from her friend group named Tom Griffiths had asked her out. The woman wasn't aware of the boy, but learned that he was friends with her friend's son, and that made her feel a bit more comfortable that Ellie was likely seeing a nice boy. He'd celebrated Ellie's birthday with her and her family shortly after and had stayed over for dinner. Griffiths even inquired about working at the family business. Ellie's mom didn't have much to say about the quiet boy, however, he wasn't conversational, and that just rubbed her dad the wrong way. He just thought that Griffiths and his daughter seemed like an odd match. According to friends, Elliot had a crush on Griffiths for a while and had been trying to date him for months. After he asked her out in January, the pair became the only ones in the friend group to couple up senior year. 17-year-old Tom Griffiths was a quiet, athletic boy who played on the Chippenham Rugby Club and was an avid swimmer, competing locally and at the international level. The young couple continued to date through April, but as the school year was coming to a close, Ellie decided that she needed to concentrate on her classes and her upcoming exams. On Wednesday, May 1st, 2019, she confided in her mom that Griffiths had been acting strangely and was interested in being more serious than Ellie thought they should be. Ellie promised her mom that she would take care of the situation. The next day, Thursday, May 2nd, 2019, Ellie told her friends that the relationship was suffocating her and broke up with Griffiths that afternoon. She messaged a group of friends around 6 p.m. and told them that he hadn't taken the news well, but that she was excited at the prospect of regaining her freedom. The following day, Friday, May 3, 2019, was normal by all accounts, with Ellie's parents heading off to work at their usual times. There were no classes scheduled that morning for Ellie, so she stayed home to study, with a classmate scheduled to pick her up for school at noon. Her ex-boyfriend Tom Griffiths, however, had gone to school, with his mother driving him in from their home in Dairy Hill at the regular time. What she didn't know is that he had no plans to stay there, and security cameras on a bus showed that he'd gotten right on one and headed home just after 8.30 a.m. 
He'd emailed his teachers and told them he was sick and texted a friend that he'd forgotten some books at home and was going to get them. What he didn't know was that his mother had plans to go home unexpectedly as well and she left again around 10.45 a.m., with Griffiths hiding in the closet until she'd gone. Once she'd left the house again, he emerged. Even though he didn't yet have a driver's license, Griffiths took the keys to one of the family cars and headed to Ellie's house. According to his phone location records, Griffiths arrived at the Goulds' residence at 10.53 a.m., at which point he entered and ultimately strangled Ellie to unconsciousness. She scratched his neck deeply in self-defense, leaving noticeable angry red marks. Griffiths then ended her life by stabbing her 13 times, mostly to the left of her neck, with a knife from her family's own kitchen. Prior to leaving the scene, about one hour later, at 11.51 a.m., Griffiths placed Ellie's hand around the handle of the knife and placed it back in a wound in her neck in what seemed like an attempt to stage an accident or suicide scene. He soon started a WhatsApp chat with a bunch of friends and wrote, quote, I think everyone's noticed I've been really down lately and I need to tell you why. Me and Ellie are going to go on a break and see what happens after exams. As well as this, my dad has cancer and my nan has been having heart problems. I've been so stressed lately and I don't know how to cope with it. I've been scratching myself around my neck area, and as this group has kind of become my best friends, I don't know who else to talk to. I'm going to see Miss Todd now and explain everything that's been happening. Other texts from that afternoon included Ellie, and texts to members of their friend group claiming he wasn't able to get a hold of her. Griffiths next drove the car home, but left on foot after changing his clothes walking to a wooded area to get rid of bloody towels and rags he had taken with him from the Goulds' house. He returned within 20 minutes, then caught a ride to school from a neighbor, talking with him about his stress and self-harming behavior. Once there, he told the nurse the same things, and she had him call for his mother to come pick him up, and she did, and later dropped him off at a friend's house, where police would ultimately find him a few hours later. Just after 3 p.m. on Friday, May 3, 2019, Ellie's father came home from work and instead of getting his weekend started, he walked in and found his daughter dead. The scene in the kitchen was bloody and Ellie was lying face down on the floor with her hand on the knife. He would later say, quote, The image of Ellie lying there on the floor has haunted me ever since that afternoon. It fills my thoughts when trying to sleep and hijacks my mind when trying to go about my day. Foul play was not immediately suspected by her parents and they tried to find ways in their mind that their daughter could have wound up dead when she was supposed to be at school. Her friend would soon tell police that she'd received a text from Ellie at 11.45 a.m. saying that she didn't need a ride and so her friend didn't come pick her up but it became apparent that Griffiths had sent that text and had used Ellie's finger to unlock her phone after he had already killed her. 
Police had immediately asked if Ellie had a boyfriend, and her mother said, in hindsight, it was evident police had a feeling what had occurred in the kitchen on Springfield Drive. Investigators at the scene were confident this was a homicide, a crime of passion, given the brutality and up-close-and-personal nature of the murder. With verification from the Goulds that Ellie did have a boy in her life and a report from a neighbor who had seen a lanky teen boy at the Goulds' front door just before 11 that day, they dug further with the friends until they knew where he was. Tom Griffiths was just seven miles away at the friend's house where his mom had dropped him off and when police picked him up, he quickly asked about Ellie, saying he hadn't heard from her that morning and had been at home studying. They took note of the fresh red scratches along his face and he was arrested around 6 p.m. He laid out how his morning had gone, saying that after dodging his mother, he talked to a neighbor about his stress level and about scratching his neck as a means to relieve it. Griffiths said the neighbor drove him back to school where he spoke to the nurse. However, police were finding flaws in his story and over the weekend, as they continued to question him, they were also piling up evidence against him. They heard from a member of the friend group that she had noticed his location had shown him near Ellie's earlier that day. They also received dash cam footage from a bus showing Griffiths driving his car away from Ellie's house and back toward Dairy Hill two miles away at 11.56 a.m. The router at the Griffiths' home provided police a timeline of when Tom was and wasn't there that day, and one anomaly they noted was the 18-minute absence recorded shortly after he returned home. Nine minutes walking distance away, searchers located a bag full of towels, rags, and an apron from the scene of the murder. His home was searched and by Monday, three days after Ellie had been killed, the lab had already determined that blood found on a pair of Tom's shoes belonged to Ellie Gould. He had provided police with no explanation as to how this could have happened, and maintained the story he had already given them, which had not placed him anywhere near Ellie's blood. He claimed he hadn't seen her for days. Though he had been arrested as soon as police had located him and saw the scratches, authorities now had enough evidence to charge Griffiths with Ellie's murder and keep him in custody. For weeks, he seemed unable to accept that he had murdered the girl he loved. In August 2019, Thomas Griffiths pleaded guilty to the murder of Eleanor Rose Gould at his plea hearing, and at his sentencing three months later in November, attempted to offer up some semblance of an explanation of what happened between them that day in the kitchen. While Griffith sat quietly avoiding eye contact, his attorney read a statement of, quote, heartfelt remorse the teen had prepared. He wrote that he had driven over to Ellie so they could study that morning, and they did, but got into a fight, after which he blacked out, only vaguely remembering being conscious of choking her, then waking up to her having already been stabbed. Griffiths wrote, quote, Ever since that dreadful day, I have tried to come to terms with what I have done. All I feel is remorse for Ellie and her family after I took such a special daughter and sister away from them. I feel confused and angry at myself at how I was able to hurt someone so special to me and others. I've never been in trouble before. 
At the time, my mental health was not good and I wish I had recognized this. As well as this, I would like to apologize to my family who are totally devastated by my actions and what happened. I've truly let myself down and hope one day I'll be able to explain to myself and others why this happened. I am so sorry. I know my apologies and explanations will never be enough, but I hope in time I can show how truly sorry I am. When his sentence was handed down, Ellie's family and friends were devastated overall because although he received a life sentence, his minimum term is just 12 and a half years, with the judge pointing out that, quote, The pain and terror she must have suffered in her last moments, as your frenzied knife attack continued, is beyond imagining. Not able to face up to what you had done, you then attempted to cover up this dreadful crime. First, and most chillingly, you left Ellie on the floor with the knife embedded in her throat and her hand around the handle of the knife. I have no doubt that you arranged the scene in order that would it appear to those who found Ellie that she had been killed, not by another person, but instead by her own hand or in some terrible accident. Indeed, that was what her father thought when he found her. There can be no more dreadful scene for any parent to contemplate than that which confronted Ellie's father when he came home that day from work. The effects of your actions have not only snuffed out the life of this talented girl, but loaded pain on her friends and family. Given his youth and his first-time offender status, Griffiths was eligible to receive the minimum sentence possible. Though due to the brutality of the crime, it is expected that he will likely not be released on his first attempt. If he were, however, he would be back on the streets around 30 years old. In their grief, Ellie's close friends began to petition the government for compulsory self-defense classes to be taught in school and have had some success in their undertaking. They feel that if Ellie had had some training, she may have been able to escape her killer and think that schools are an ideal place to teach children such skills. In response to the minimum 12-year sentence currently in place for juvenile killers in Britain, the Goulds appealed for Griffith's sentence to be increased, contending it was unduly lenient, however no review was granted. Ellie's parents felt that Griffith's sentence should be at least 17 years one year in prison for each year Ellie got to live. They next began to campaign for tougher sentences for juveniles who commit murder, and they achieved that to a degree in March 2021, when the so-called Ellie's Law was passed, raising the minimum sentence for juvenile killers to 14 years, with possible sentences up to 27 years. This does not change Griffith's sentence, however, the law did remove his and other juvenile killers' right to have their sentence reviewed when 50% has been completed. However, he'll now be required to serve all 12 and a half years before applying for parole. They next plan to focus on increasing the minimum sentence for life killers who use a weapon from the scene of the murder, like Griffiths did, because it's currently 15 years. However, if the weapon is brought to the scene, the minimum sentence in Britain is 25 years, a difference the Goulds plan to drastically reduce. Regarding their recent success, Ellie's mom said, quote, I think she would be very proud. She'd say, well done, mom. 
you've achieved something amazing. As always, thanks for listening. Be back soon with an all-new episode, but until then, lovelies, don't be scared. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.